All right, everybody. Um, the key biblical truth is that when things are at their worst, remember God's faithfulness. So this message is on Psalm 22, and I'm going to be reading from the NIV version. So feel free to open up your Bible to uh, that psalm. Martin Luther described Psalm 22 as follows. This is a kind of a gem among psalms and is uniquely excellent and remarkable. It contains those deep, sublime, and heavy sufferings of Christ when agonizing in the midst of terrors and pangs of divine wrath and death, which surpass all thought and comprehension. Psalms serve in a couple of functions for the Christian. First, and perhaps most importantly, psalms are tools of prayer. They encompass a wide range of emotions, and a psalm can be found for any situation one may encounter. When words fail, psalms can provide the language we seek. Second, psalms are sometimes prophecies. In the book of Acts, Peter describes David as a prophet, which gives us license to look at foreshadowings of Jesus in the Psalms. While these prophecies are not as clear um, as some of those in the actual explicitly prophetic books, some are quite spectacular. This Psalm, Psalm 22, is one such Psalm. It's packed with powerful images and details surrounding Christ's crucifixion. This Psalm is referenced several times in the New Testament, one himself during the gospel narratives of Jesus' death. As we go, go through the psalm, we'll see how it is fulfilled in Christ and how it applies to us today. So let's get into the psalm. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. The way of the of Christ the way of the cross is a difficult road. It is sort of an abnormality uh, today, historically speaking, that followers of Christ can worship freely and without much persecution. The first couple centuries of the church were marked by severe persecutions under the emperors Nero and Domitian. Christians were eaten alive by animals, used as human torches for the emperor's garden parties, and alive in oil. Jan Hus, an early Protestant reformer, was burned alive for his opposition to the Roman Catholic Church. Today, more than ever, there are Christians being persecuted all over the world. 300 Christians are killed every month for their faith, and more are persecuted. To a lesser extent, Christians here in America are asked to make sacrifices for Jesus. If the church fulfills its prophetic role of calling out the wickedness in culture, we will be shamed and ridiculed for our beliefs. The church will be called bigoted, judgmental, and hateful. So what do we do when we lose everything for serving God? What do we do when we give everything to God and our payment is suffering and pain, ridicule and mocking? This may have been how Jesus felt hanging on the cross. He knew how a story ended, but as he hung there, nails through his hand and his feet, his back torn to pieces and thorns encircling his head, listening to the ridicule and laughter and insults of those around him, it could have been tempting to forget. In agony and despair, Jesus cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lema sebastani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Has Jesus given up? Had God forsaken him? Before the Bible had chapters and verse numbers, if a Jew wanted to reference a passage of scripture, they could reference the first few words 
of a passage, and those knowledgeable of the scripture would immediately know what that person was talking about. For example, if I were to say, to be or not to be, that is the question, or four score and seven years ago, while you may not know the entire monologues, um, most of you will know that I'm referring to a speech in Hamlet and the Gettysburg Address. So when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We should read the psalm he's referring to, Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Yet, you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted in you, and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. While we can't be certain, this psalm may give us a window into what Jesus may have been thinking of, what he was meditating on in his last few minutes alive in his earthly body. The shame and the anguish of the cross, uh, hanging naked there, pouring himself out in agony belong belief, his back torn to shreds. Dr. Alexander Mathril describes a Roman flogging Jesus received. I want to warn you, this uh, description is kind of intense, but it's important that's for us to know this, to understand what Jesus went through for us. Earlier we sang, we'll never know how much it costs to see our sin upon that cross. And hopefully this, well, we'll never truly understand. Hopefully this could give us sort of a window. Roman floggings were known to be terribly brutal. They usually consisted of 39 lashes, but frequently there were a lot more than that, depending on the mood of the soldier applying the blows. The soldier would whip, would use a whip of braided leather thongs with metal balls woven into them. When the whip would strike the flesh, these balls would cause deep bruises or contusions, which would break open with further blows. The whip had pieces of sharp bones as well, which would cut the flesh severely. The back would be so shredded that part of the spine was sometimes exposed by the deep, deep cuts. The whipping would have gone all the way uh, from the soldiers down to the back, to the buttocks and the back of the legs. As the flogging continues, the lacerations would tear into, un into the underlying skeletal muscles and produce quivering rib ribbons of bleeding flesh. A third century historian by the name of Eusebius described a flogging by saying, the sufferer's veins were laid bare and the very muscles, sinews, and bowels of the victim were open to exposure. We know that many people would die from this kind of beating even before they could be crucified. At the very least, the victim would experience tremendous pain and go into something called hypovolemic shock. Once a person is hanging on the cross in the vertical position, crucifixion is essentially an agonizingly slow death by asphyxiation. The reason is that the stresses on the muscles and the diaphragm put the chest into an inhale position. Basically, in order to exhale, the individual uh, must push up on his feet. Muscles would be eased for a moment. In doing so, the nail would tear through the foot and eventually locking up against the tarsal bones. After managing to exhale, the person would then be able to re relax down and take another breath. Again, he'd have to push himself up to exhale, scraping his bloodied back against the coarse wood of the cross. This would go on and on until complete exhaustion would take over and the person wouldn't be able to push up and breathe anymore. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? What do you do in agony like this? What do you pray? In you, our ancestors put their trust. They trusted in you and you deliver them. To you, they cried out and were saved. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. 
While our world crumbles around us, we would do well to remember the stories of our ancestors, both physical and spiritual. Remember Abraham's reckless faith in God, trusting him enough to be willing to sacrifice his own son. Remember Joseph, who was exalted to the second in command of Egypt after years in prison. Remember Daniel, who was cast into a den of lions, and his friends who were thrown into a burning furnace yet survived. Remember the judges who overcame incredible odds to rescue God's people. Remember God's people rescued from captivity in Egypt and brought through the wilderness to the land God had promised them. Let's read on. But I am a worm, not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. Side worm, um, the psalmist mentions this is the Tola worm, and it's fascinating. It produces a red dye, which would be used by the Jew to dye the curtains of the tabernacle and the garments of the high priest and in purification rites. Here's a description of the Tola worm's life cycle by Sherry Abbott. When the female crimson worm, that's the Tola worm, is ready to lay her eggs, which would happen only once in her life. She climbs up a tree or fence and attaches herself to it. With her body attached to the wooden tree, a hard shell forms. It is a shell so hard and so secure, secure that, to the wood that it can only be removed by tearing apart the body, which would kill the worm. The female worm lays her eggs under the, her body, under the protective shell. When the larvae hatches, they remain under the mother's protective shell so that the baby worm can feed on the living body of the mo mother worm for three days. After the three days, the mother worm dies and her body excretes a crimson or scarlet dye that stains the wood to which she is attached and her baby worms. The baby worms remain crimson colored for their entire lives. They're identified as the crimson worm. On day, four, on day four, the tail of the mother worm is pulled up into her body forming a heart-shaped body, or, yeah, forming a heart-shaped body that is no longer crimson, but has turned into a snow-white patch that looks like a patch of wool on the tree or fence. It then begins to flake off and drop through the ground looking like snow. So this worm, the psalmist references, shelters its children, sacrificing itself for its children, giving its body to its children to eat, and staining its children in the tree it dies upon crimson, covering them with its blood. Even bugs will sing the glory of God sometimes. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their head. You trust in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth, I was cast on you from my mother's womb. You have been my God. As the psalmist is being ridiculed, mocked for his faith in the Lord, where does he find his identity? He doesn't find it in what others think of him. He doesn't think about, uh, he doesn't find it in what others are saying about him. He doesn't find it in how much money he has, what clothes he wears, anything like that. No, he finds his identity in God. He remembers who gave him life and where he came from. Mockery is par for the course for God's saints. Noah was mocked for building an ark in the middle of the desert. David was laughed at when he was facing down Goliath. Before Jesus was crucified, he was jeered at, dressed in kingly attire, blindfolded and struck. Prophesy, they said, who struck you? Jesus died under a sign mocking the idea he could be a king. This is Jesus, king of the Jews. <laughs> Likely all of us, We'll deal with mockery at some point. You believe in fairy tales or 
You're such a self-righteous do-gooder. When the mocking comes, remember your identity. You belong to God and have belonged to him from your mother's womb. As David declares in Psalm 139, for you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret, in that, in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. The psalm, Psalm 22, now moves from the shorter sections of describing his troubles, uh, opposed by his memories of God's faithfulness, to a longer sec section describing his woes. Psalm, uh, the psalm reads, Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouth against me. Imagine being surrounded by beasts, powerful bulls and lions surrounding you, encircling you, baring their teeth, moving closer and closer. In these modern times, we don't uh, really have to worry about wild animals, but in ancient times, they were a serious threat. Wild beasts have a couple associations, associations in the Bible. The first is uh, danger and destruction. Uh, this point is probably the most obvious. Beasts are dangerous, and on a deeper, but on a deeper level, beasts are used as metaphors for evil empires and wild kings. Think of the apocalyptic descriptions of the kingdoms in Daniel's. They're all characterized as beasts. A Spur, uh, Spurgeon wrote on this verse of the psalm, the priests, elders, scribes, Pharisees, and rulers and captains bellowed around the cross like wild cattle. They fed in the fat and solitary pastures of Bashan, full of strength and fury. They stamped and foamed around the innocent one and longed to gore him to death with their cruelties. Beasts are also portrayed as means of God's punishment and, just, and judgment. For instance, in Hosea 2.12 and Leviticus 26.22, God warns that he will send wild beasts as a consequence for disobedience, resulting in destruction and loss. Similarly, Jeremiah announces four destroyers as judgment upon the apostate nation of Judah. The sword to kill, dogs to uh, drag away the bodies, birds of the air, and wild beasts to devour and destroy. This judgment for sin that should be directed at us for opposing God and scorning his ways are turned, turned onto, uh, onto Jesus on the cross as our substitute. Furthermore, imagine how poignant these verses would have been to uh, early Christian martyrs, especially uh, those in the early church, many of whom were killed by wild beasts, torn, uh, torn to pieces for the enjoyment of the Romans in the Colosseum. The psalm continues. I am poured out like water and all my joints uh, bones are out of joint. My heart is turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. So remember those things. Uh, poured out like water, bones out of joint, a uh, heart like wax, a dry mouth. Uh, Dr. Methril describes other effects of crucifixion. As a person slows down his breathing on the cross, he goes into what is called respiratory acidosis. The carbon dioxide in the blood is dissolved as carbonic acid, causing the acidity of the blood to increase. This results in uh, irregular heartbeat. Even before he died, the hypovolemic shock from the beating would have caused sustained rapid 
that would contribute to heart failure, uh, resulting in a collection of fluid in the membranes surrounding his heart called pericardial effusion, as well as around the lungs, which is called pleural effusion. When the Roman soldier came around and confirmed Jesus was dead by thrusting a spear into his right side, the spear apparently went through the right lung and into the heart. So when the spear was pulled out, some fluid like the pericardial effusion and the pleural effusion would come out. This would have the appearance of clear liquid, like water, followed by a large volume of blood, as the eyewitness John describes in his gospel. The hypovolemic shock the crucified victim experiences causes a couple of effects. First, the heart races to try to pump blood that isn't there. Second, the blood pressure drops, causing fainting or collapse. Third, the kidneys stop producing urine to maintain what volume is left, what volume of blood is left. And fourth, the person becomes very thirsty as the body craves fluid to replace the lost blood volume. Upon the cross, Jesus cried, I thirst. During his crucifixion, Christ poured himself out like water, giving his everything so that we might drink from the well that never empties, waters that uh, make us never thirsty again. After his death, his side was pierced and waters flowed out of him. The psalm continues. Dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them. They cast lots for my garments. Metherel continues. Jesus would have been laid down before his crucifixion and his hands would have been nailed in an outstretched position to the horizontal crossbeam. This crossbar was called the uh, patibulum. And at this stage, it was separate from the vertical beam which was permanently set in the ground. The Romans used spikes that were five to six inches long and were tapered to a sharp point. They were driven through the wrist. This was a solid position that would lock the hand. If the nails had been driven through the palm, as we see in paintings and such, his weight would have caused the skin to tear and he would have fallen off the cross. So the nails went through the wrist. Although this was considered a part of the hand in the language of that day, um, yeah. Okay, so the, this whole area was handed, not just this like we think of it now. They called all of this the hand. So it's important to understand that the nail would go through the place where the median nerve runs. This is the largest nerve going through the hand, and it would be crushed by the nail that was being pounded in. This pain is similar to that of banging your funny bone, but instead of banging, it uh, methyl invites us to imagine taking a pair of pliers and squeezing and crushing that nerve. That effect would be similar to what Jesus experienced. The pain was absolutely unbearable. In fact, it was literally beyond words to describe. They had to invent a new word, excruciating, literally meaning out of the cross. Think of that. They needed to create a new word because there was nothing in the language that could describe the intense anguish caused, by, caused during crucifixion. At this point, Jesus was hoisted, hoisted onto the crossbeam, was attached to the vertical stake, and then the nails were driven through Jesus's feet. Again, the nerves in his feet would have been crushed and there would have been a similar type of pain. His arms would immediately have been stretched, probably about six inches in length, and his shoulders would have been dislocated. <laughs> this is amazing. Here embedded in the book of Psalms, written hundreds of years before crucifixion was invented, is a detailed description of the death of Messiah a thousand years later. The villains, described as dogs, 
Again, circle the psalmist. They pierce his hands and his feet. His bones are on display. He is stared at and gloated over. His clothes are divided and lots are cast for them. The psalmist is surrounded by terrible beasts, snarling and baring their fangs. His bones are pulled out of joint. His heart is melting within him. His mouth is dry. He is laying in the dust of death. All seems lost. The king has been defeated and put to shame. I can't help to think of this point. Um, Aslan from the Chronicles of Narnia. The wicked white witch of Narnia threatens to kill one of the Pevensey children, the traitor Edmund. Edmund betrayed his submission to and serving the queen in exchange for candy. His betrayal makes him des deserving of death, according to the deep magic, but Aslan takes his, the place of Edmund. It was what the, uh, what the witch truly desired. She knew that the deep magic declared that she had the right to take his life instead, and that Aslan would be willing to die in the boy's place. The lion is humiliated. Aslan's mane is shaved. His paws are bound as the wicked white witch and her goons cackle around him. Aslan is tied down to the circular stone altar. The mighty lion is disgraced, defeated and killed. The world of Narnia is destined for eternal winter. The man we thought was the Messiah is hanging helpless on the cross. Just days earlier, we were singing Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And now our king is naked and bloody, defeated by the Romans before we even had a chance. Jesus is nailed down to a wooden cross. The mighty lion of Judah disgraced, defeated, and killed. The world is destined for eternal winter. But as the king dies, there's a prayer on his lips. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly. Deliver me from the sword my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lion. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. And with this prayer, the tone of the psalm shifts dramatically. This psalm is like a battle. It kind of ebbs and flows from deep darkness to brief flashes of light. It reminds me a bit, uh, like for anyone who knows the Lord of the Rings, the Battle of Helm's Deep. The battle took place over... Um, Throughout a dark and stormy night, Aragorn and King Theoden lead the forces of Rohan in defending Helm's Deep, an ancient fortress, against the dark forces of Saruman. The battle goes back and forth with winds and losses on both sides. Orcs and Arakai surround the keep. The defenders manage to warn off attacks on the walls and at the castle gate, but the orcs eventually blow up a section of the wall and the defenders are forced back into the castle keep. The battle seemed lost, but when things appeared dark, darkest, dawn broke. As Aragorn and Theoden led one last desperate charge against the forces of darkness, suddenly, shining in the sun, Gandalf the White Wizard appeared with reinforces, re reinforcements, crushing evil between the hammer and the anvil. Let's read on. I will declare your name to the people. In the assemblies, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he is not despised or scorn the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but he has listened to his cry for help. But I thought it was over. I thought the king had lost. Hadn't the white witch won? They killed the king. Exactly. God has not forsaken us. The cross is not the end of the story because the tomb is empty. Lewis writes, though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still, which she did not know. 
Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time, but if she could have looked back a little further into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who has committed no treachery was killed in the traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. And so it did. The stone cracked and Aslan returned, restored stronger than ever, shining with golden light to lead his soldiers to destroy the witch and her forces of evil. The psalm continues, from you comes the theme of my praises in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations will bow before him. These show the results of the afflicted suffering. God's people are drawn to, drawn to praise him. Those who fear, the, who fear God fulfill their vows and their duties to the Lord with joy. The poor are fed and satisfied, both in body and in spirit. All the ends of the earth turn to God, as John puts it in Revelation, a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. The palm branches were in their hands and they cried out, with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The psalm continues, For dominion is the Lord. He rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him, those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to people yet unborn, he has done it. Even the rich, who Jesus tells us, it is more difficult to enter the kingdom of heaven than to put a camel through the eye of the needle, are present, eating and worshiping alongside the poor. All who go down to the dust, those who are dead, are alive again, kneeling before God. Generations of people are told about the Lord, proclaiming to the people who aren't even born yet that he has done it. He has defeated the forces of evil. Through the cross, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? So what do we do when it seems like God has lost, when evil hems us in, uh, when we are faced with the option to betray God or lay ourselves down? First, remember our spiritual ancestors. As Christians, we should be filling ourselves up with, with the stories of God's people, both from the Old Testament and throughout the age of the church. We should remember God's faithfulness to his people through suffering and death. Second, Remember our identity. We are not what the world thinks of us. We are God's children. From the mother's womb, you have been our God. Finally, turn to God in praise and be faithful to him as you trust in his faithfulness. Remember our ultimate destiny, that God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. That if we have died with him, we will live with him. And if we endure with him, we will reign with him. For a Christian, victory is won through affliction. Evil is thwarted when we turn the other cheek or walk the extra mile for our enemies. When the church has been acting like the church, this is how our battles are won, how the gospel is spread. The body of Christ is closest to Jesus when we share in his suffering, when we join in his pain and affliction. Through this pain, new life is born. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness declaring to the people yet unborn, 
that he has done it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this psalm. Uh, thank you for showing us how to, how to suffer like you suffered. But thank you that the cross is not the end of the story. Thank you that at the end of that road there is resurrection. Lord, I pray for all those who are now suffering for you, all those who are giving their lives. Thank you for everyone who suffered and died so that we could be standing here uh, praising your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.